G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. It's revelation. But if you disagree, you're still my brother. This is not a test of faith because we both agree on the big thing. He is coming back. Hi, and welcome to Today with Jeff Vines. Today we'll hear part two of Riders of the Apocalypse. Pastor Jeff continues his explanation of what the four riders represent in terms of our world's future and how we can rejoice even in the face of great tribulation. We're all going to say, I am rich. And don't play a game with me. Well, I am spiritually. Yes, I know you are. I'm talking physically, you are as well. I am rich. Yes, you are. And I wonder how many of us are willing to lose money for the cause of Christ. This is Today with Jeff Vines and the second half of Riders of the Apocalypse. We're in Revelation chapter 6. You would do well if you have your Bible to go there. And, uh, and what about the number 666? Notice there are three of them. It's the opposition of the Holy Spirit, God the Father, God the Son. And it says it's man's number. If the number of God is seven because it's perfection, then the number six is man's effort stopping short of God. It's simply trying to tell you, you're either going to live for man and you're going to stop there. You're going to live for something higher. You're going to live for God. If you live for God, you're going to think the thoughts of God and do the work of God. If you live for man, you're going to do the works of man and you're going to think the thoughts of man. And instead of building God's kingdom, you're going to build your own. It's that simple. That we are all going to be faced with the decision to make in our lives. And you have no guarantee that when you do the right thing that you won't lose your job. I worry about myself in this. I really do. Because if it's true that America has most of the world's wealth, and if it's true that the average Christian gives away less than 2%, I just don't see how we fit that neatly into the first century Christians. You know who the rich ones are when the writer of the gospel writes, right? You know who the rich are, right? It's you. Whoa. Do you have clean drinking water? Do you have a roof over your head? You're the rich ones. You want to say, no, I'm not the rich ones. I I live over here. I know people far wealthy. Hey, look, I didn't say there weren't people more rich than you, richer than you. I'm simply saying, according to the Bible's definition, hey, let's say this together. I think you're going to have a hard time doing it. On the count of three, we're all going to say, I am rich. It's hard for you to do that, isn't it? Because you don't believe me. Bible's definition, you are. I'm going to count to three and we're all going to say, I am rich. And don't play a game with me. Well, I am spiritually. Yes, I know you are. I know you are. I'm talking physically, you are as well. I'm just trying to get you to admit it. One, two, three. I am rich. Yes, you are. And I wonder how many of us are willing to lose money for the cause of Christ. I worry about myself in this. I really do. Let me tell you why, and then you can tell me if you worry about yourself. I remember living in Zimbabwe and pulling over to the side of the road when I was on my way to a place called Mashoko Hospital, 
And it was during a difficult time. And I remember seeing the swollen bellies of the little children who were dying because of hunger. And I remember as a 22-year-old, this was too much for me to handle. And I pulled the side of the road and I had a little conversation with God. As a matter of fact, this is where my apologetic, given a defense for the gospel, began. Right here in this car, in this time. And I said to God, what's up with you? How can you create a planet where little children starve to death? And man, it wasn't an audible voice, but it's like God said to me, how dare you? I have provided plenty of food for everyone to eat and have plenty to eat. Zimbabwe was called the breadbasket of Africa. There was enough food in one growing season to feed the country 10 years. But Robert Mugabe takes the maize and the corn and he sells it overseas for foreign currency and pads his Swiss bank account so that the rich get richer and the poor get poor. That home you saw earlier on the screen, that was Robert Mugabe's home, one of them in the county or the city of Borrowdale, while his people are starving. They found a seven mile wide diamond mine in Zimbabwe a few years ago. Seven miles wide. There's enough resources in Zimbabwe so that the people could have everything they need and want to survive. But evil men and evil dictators, as the black horse goes out and rides all over planet earth, cause each other to suffer because of greed. But here's the issue. I find that I am just Mugabe on a smaller scale. Because when I make more money, do I hoard it for myself? Or do I help those who are less fortunate? The more God blesses me, do I give more away? Or do I say, oh, now I can have that trip to Hawaii. Now I can buy those golf clubs. Now I can get that car. Then I'm just Mugabe on a smaller scale. It's all about me. If your boss told you that if you talked about God, you'd lose your job, would you stop talking about God? Daniel didn't. Daniel didn't. I think we are great at rationalizing things in America because it's so much about us. So we say, well, God surely wouldn't ask me to lose my job. No, God just asked you to be faithful. Let him be sovereign. The beauty of the gospel, says Francis Chan, is that Christ is of such supreme worth that he would gladly sacrifice all to have him. Persecution will follow the Christians as the gospel goes out. There will be economic hardship. But unfortunately, these are at another horse. And this horse is pale. The actual Greek word is, I'm sorry to be crass, but in East Tennessee, we call it puke green. This horse represents death on a larger scale, demise, decay. He says, I opened the fourth seal and I heard a voice come and I looked and behold a pale horse and its rider's name was death and Hades followed him and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with famine and with pestilence by wild beasts of the sea or of the earth rather. Now right away we know what this is because death and Hades follow. Remember Hades is the the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew idea of Sheol. Hades does not mean the same thing as hell. Hades means simply death, the grave, the pit. And so as the gospel goes out in conquest and Christians are persecuted and there's economic hardships for those who call themselves Christ followers, to some degree, at least to some degree, there are things you will have to give up to follow Jesus. It will include some economic advance or gain. While that's going on, death will rule the planet. 
This time, John does use the, the great sword, the sword that means warfare, man killing man. From genocide to world war, civil war, man will go on killing each other for land and power and influence. And basically, John is told, don't be surprised. Your kingdom is not of this world, it's from another place. Don't be surprised if the prince of the power of the air has his way, but the time will come and judgment will roll like a river. No one is more effective in killing people than people. Like the Anglican revolt of 8th century, 36 million people died, 429 million in today's terms. The Mongol conquest of the 13th century, 40 million, 278 million by today's terms. The fall of the Ming dynasty in the 17th century, 25 million, 112 million by today's terms. World War I, 15 million. World War II, 55 million. The 30-year war, 7 million. And the annihilation of the American Indian, 20 million people. 20 million. And because there's war, what follows war, because men abuse and rule each other right behind war is plague pestilence more often than not is associated with war the black death of 1347 75 million people the plague of justinian 541 afflicted the entire byzantine empire destroyed one-fourth of the eastern mediterranean killing 5,000 people a day and in the 1700s a hundred plague epidemics swept across europe and after war and plague famine is sure to follow they're all related the Bengal famine of 1770, 10 million dead. The famine of 1783, 11 million people died. The great European famine of 1315, 7.5 million people died. Then there's the Ethiopian, Somalian, and two-thirds of the rest of the planet. And interestingly enough, it's finally been admitted just recently that anthropological and archaeological studies reveal that famines throughout human history are the result of human action, not the failure of natural resources. God has given us plenty to survive. We just abuse each other. And John is told it's going to continue to happen. A quarter of the earth will be impacted. The reason I hold to this theory that the book of Revelation talks about the types of events that are going to happen between the time Jesus establishes his kingdom until the time he returns is because everything I've just told you has been happening since the time Jesus established his kingdom. In fact... The reason I have a hard time believing those who say, well, Revelation is about the last seven years of world history and things escalate and then the return of Christ. The problem is the numbers don't match up. For instance, violence has been in decline for the last thousand years. We are less violent today than we were a thousand years ago. We continue to experience plagues, but to a less degree in the past, probably because of medicine. And we've not seen the end of famine, but they occur with less intensity, probably because of the shipping lanes and the way we're able to get food to the place of pain. The thing I'm simply saying is, these things John expected, the Apostle Paul expected, Jesus expected that persecution and tribulation would happen in every generation, not just the last seven years of world history. And that would have made sense to John because John would have wanted to be encouraged and he's being told, even in your generation, that's why the Bible says these things must soon take place because they happen in every generation. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 24, this generation will not pass till these things take place because it happens in every generation. You with me? Say, Pastor Jeff, are you saying we're living in the great tribulation right now? Absolutely. Now, hold on. Stay with me. This is where somebody got up last night and walked out because they were so angry. Because I know this isn't what some of you have been taught. And I could be wrong. It's revelation. But I don't think I am. But if you disagree, you're still my brother. This is not a test of faith. Because we both agree on the big thing. 
He is coming back. Amen? All right. Thanks for joining us on Today with Jeff Vines. You're listening to Riders of the Apocalypse. Let's continue. Here's Pastor Jeff. Also, just throwing in, wild beasts are talked about here. You know, uh, it still happens today that people are killed by wild beasts, but it's far less than it was a thousand years ago. Far less. I read online that 53 people in America die from bees and wasp. Stay out of the honey, man. <laughs> 31 people die from dogs a year. Uh, I reminded my wife that 20 people die from horses every year. And then, of course, there are the one million who wish they were dead because of cats. And so... <clears throat> The problem is that the gospel goes out in conquest. Christians will be persecuted. There will be economic hardship. Death will reign on planet earth. But look what happens. Then we're moved to this scene where the saints under the altar cry out to God. And they say, as the fifth seal is open, with a loud voice, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who had been killed or would be killed as they were was completed. Anytime I hear somebody tell me today that we're not in the tribulation, here's what I think of. Acts chapter 14, 21, and when they had preached the gospel to the city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in faith and saying, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. I think of Revelation 1, 9, where John already spoke. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus. So John believed he was in it right now. When people say we're not in the great tribulation, I think of the 200 million of our brothers and sisters in Christ who are harassed, abused, arrested, tortured, executed simply for being Christ followers. The men and women all over planet earth who are sold into slavery, crucified, raped, and tortured. The 105,000 who lose their lives every year, one every five minutes. I think of the Christian pastors back in India. They pour hydrochloric acid on them. They burn them. They rape their wives. They kill their children. Let me ask you something. Do you think they would think they're in the great tribulation? If you keep trying to understand revelation through American eyes, you're going to miss it. We are blessed here. But doggone it, there's so many Christians in the world who don't have it as good as we have it. And they do suffer economic hardship. You ask them if they're in the great tribulation, they're going to say, could it get any worse? I think of the Rwandan pastor who stood in front of his church building in 1994 with Christian boys and girls locked away in the church building. Christian, little Christian boys and girls. And the Hutu rebels came and they said, move over, we're going to go in and slaughter these children. And the Hutu pastor said to them, I will not give the sheep of Jesus over to the wolves of Satan. And they slaughtered him. He gave his life for those kids. They went in, broke down the doors of the church, and they slaughtered all those little kids with machetes. Do you think their parents would think they're living in the great tribulation? John believed he was in it. Paul believed all Christians would have to survive it. And so too, all who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Stop looking for some great tribulation to come. You're in it right now. It may intensify. I can't say that. It might happen, but you're in it. And the souls cry out. And he says, wait until the number. In other words, God says, I've got my people numbered. I know where they are. And I've got my eye on them. And I will keep them safe and secure. They may lose their lives, but it won't be the end. It'll be only the beginning. 
Now, here's what I want to leave you with. I got four minutes to do it, which is ungodly and unfair. <clears throat> My problem is that when people first come to God, I think it's because they're looking for a better life, and that's okay to a degree. People are tempted to think, and largely due to the way people like me preach, They think like this, if I'm faithful and obedient, then my financial life will be secure. So they flock to churches that tell them, become a Christian and everything will be good for you. Well, of course you flock to churches like that because that's what you want to hear. Hard, hard to rationalize that with the book of Revelation. My health will be great. My hair will look really thick. (laughs) I can promise you that's not going to happen. My boss will see how wonderful I am and he'll promote me. I'll be so good looking that if I were the opposite sex, I would date me. (laughs) And in the words of Garrison Keillor with Lake Wabagon, where all the men are strong, all the women are good looking and all the children are above average. But then we look around at our lives and the tribulation. And in the words of Ann Dillard, we say, what the Sam Hill's going on? And the answer is Jesus said, these things I have spoken to you that in me, you may have peace, but in the world you will have peace tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. The Greek word is philipsis. Tribulation is used 45 times in the Bible. And I'm amazed at one verse in one chapter of the book of revelation. And all of a sudden we think it's one big, great event. It is. And it's lasted from the time Jesus established his kingdom until the time he returns to take back what is rightfully his. By the way, you know what that word philipsis means? It means to squeeze the good to reveal authenticity. Tribulation has a way of revealing who's really in and who's not. And Jesus says, face it with a splendid defiance because you will win in the end. Revelation has a message. One, don't be surprised. Can we say that together on the count of three? One, two, three, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when tribulation comes into your life as if you're shocked. And the other thing is your response to tribulation will be determined by your reason for living. You're on planet earth, man. The prince of the power of the air. There's a battle happening. You will win in the end. But in the meantime, it's a battle. Every day you get up is a battle, isn't it? For your thoughts, for your mind, for your countenance. Every day is going to be a battle. Don't be surprised. But the way you respond to it has a lot to do with whose kingdom you're living for. If it's for your kingdom, you're going to be depressed. If it's for the kingdom of God. If we ever had a theme song. I think it should be the one that goes, I get knocked down, but I get up again. Ain't nothing going to keep me down. Now, I hate all the other lyrics to that song, but I do like that little section. I get knocked down, but I get up again. There's nothing going to keep me down. In the end, in chapter 7, those who are under the altar given the white robes of purity, and they start to sing. That's the thing about Christ followers. They all, they're always singing. In the African culture, you sing to calm yourself. They are singing people. Christians sing in prison. They sing in the desert. They sing in danger. They sing at night. They sing in hospital rooms. They sing when death is near. They sing at gravesides. They even sing when they can't sing. When my mother died, my brothers and I stood up and we sang Amazing Grace. That was her favorite song. There was a trumpet accompanying us. It was beautiful. If I do say so myself. When my father died a few years later, we sang How Great Thou Art. That was my father's favorite song. And my brothers and I agreed that when one of us dies, whoever goes first, that the rest of us will sing Jesus is Calling. 
Anybody remember that? In 1994, in that same Rwandan genocide, my friend Pius, who's a friend of Anastas Abamunga that you've met, when those rebels came into the church and they slaughtered those little boys and girls, there was a little girl that just began singing. She wasn't dead yet. She had, been, she had been hacked with a machete. And in an attempt to calm herself, seven or eight years old, she just started singing. Jesus is tenderly calling me home, calling today, calling today. You know that song? Why from the sunshine of love will you roam? Farther and farther away. And she kept saying, calling today, calling today. She kept saying, Jesus is calling, is tenderly calling today. And they shot her. Would you close your eyes for me and bow your heads? The hound of heaven has been after you for a long time and he's calling you. If you're in the room and you're saying, I know he's calling, I can feel it. I'm going to wait till I straighten my life up before I answer the call. You're missing the point. You can't. You're incapable without the power of God in your life. He's just asking you to come home. You may be dying right now. You may be fighting a disease and you don't know if you're going to live. You know that you will win either way. Jesus may be calling you home right now. We pray for your healing and we know there's power in the name of Jesus. This little girl knew that Jesus was calling and she was coming. What about you? Is he calling you home? If he is, I'm going to ask you to make a decision today. If you know that God has been calling and you'd like to come home now, you'd like to come home because you know in the end the victory is yours and that he will stand upon the earth and he will have the final say. He's Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Would you pray this prayer with me? You don't have to do it out loud. Just pray these words. Jesus, I know you've been calling me. I want to come home. I know I am a sinner. I know I need forgiveness. I confess that your blood covers my sin. I want joy to be central in my life. I want to know that no matter what this world throws at me, I can get back up. Because you got back up. And I will have everlasting life. Jesus, you have called me. I know that by the Spirit in me. So now, Jesus, I come home. This is Today with Jeff Vines, and that's the end of Riders of the Apocalypse. To listen to this whole message again, head to our website, that's vision.org.au, and search for Jeff Vines. There's plenty more resources and information there to check out too. Oh.
Today with Jeff Vines. Just another way vision is connecting faith to your life. for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.